In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, Merry Christmas. Wait a minute. It is not Christmas yet. We have a little more waiting and preparation to do as this morning and today are Advent 4 before we begin the real celebration in anticipation of the arrival of the Christmas season this morning. And I was thinking through my mind with morning prayer um, and with especially our Old Testament lesson and the gospel lesson in Luke, what kind of clever illustration could I come up with to for the big message of what we are to pull out of the word this morning. And I don't know if if a lot of you know my past. I've told some stories, but before I was ordained, I spent 18 years in the trenches of youth ministry and have a whole lot of stories of with youth through the years as that's what I did in college and on until ordination. And it just goes to show you can actually find a lot of life lessons in some of the great things that happen and some of the not so great things that happen as part of past life and work experience and ministry and all of those things. And I was reminded of what I don't know if you realize there is several games in youth ministry that have actually been banned now. There is an entire list that you are not supposed to play because one way or another, these games have gone horribly wrong. And it's kind of comical, but but you see why if you read this list of games um, that you were not supposed to do those things anymore. And I remember before that list was made, we were famous in our youth ministry at several different churches I had been a part of for playing one of these games that made that list. And that game was hide and seek in the dark when we would do lock-ins. And we had a tradition in in some of the youth ministries I was a part of to have Advent lock-ins before Christmas as a final get ready for the Christmas season. And we would always seem to play, it was a very popular with the young folks, we would always play that game as a part of that Advent retreat or lock-in. And I remember we had a new girl named Abby. She came to visit. She was very first time she had ever been to a church thing in her entire life. So at the very first, she was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And then as we started playing that game and she started to build relationships, you could see it's like, this might be a neat thing and I need to check this out more. And then the kids, when we came to a point in the, in the program of the evening, they said, is it time for hide and seek in the dark? And we said, yes, we can play that game. And so Abby, not knowing what was going on, was like, I'm adventurous. I will try this out. And we always had this little trick that we would do to rookies, as we called them. We would turn on, we had outside of the nave of the church, we kept the church locked up, but then outside of the nave in the dark, we had some speakers. And if we turned on the microphones, we could speak in voices that you wouldn't know where they would come from. And so as this seems brilliant, um, that night, it was one of the nights it went terribly wrong and yet ended with hope. Abby and one of her friends, she wasn't alone, that was a part of the youth group, were walking under that speaker. And one of our boy leader chaperones 
uh, that was in college decided right when this new girl, Abby, and her friend got under that speaker, he made a horrible, scary voice and said, I'm coming for you. And I was not too far away, and it was dark, but I could still see what happened. Abby fainted. She was scared to death. And you hear this, when that happened, and she just went over like a sack of potatoes. And we were like, all right, time out. Game has gone wrong. Let's go check on Abby. we, We couldn't get, we had a strange light set up in the church. So the best thing to do was turn on the flashlights in the darkness and rush up to her. And as she was coming to, she remembered the lights coming to her in the darkness in that time of fear. And I was like, a comical story and yet a life story which prepares us for this final Sunday of Advent. And isn't it funny how we can make a life lesson out of most anything? The light in the dark And then when Abby's eyes adjusted to that light within the darkness really sets us up for what we learn in the Old Testament lesson in Samuel as well as our story in Luke as we prepare in this final Sunday morning of Advent and prepare ourselves for the arrival of the Christ child and the Christmas season. And That game with the youth became one of those very symbolic of the journey through the season of Advent. Listen to the themes, the interplay of darkness and light, the way certain ideas can get turned on their heads, the waiting to see what has already been given, and the fact that there's nothing we can do to rush it, and you can't work any harder to earn it. That's all of the themes which come from this life lesson. And that was my favorite part, that last one, the need to wait without effort to see and receive what was already there in front of us. So much of our lives, it seems that we work to earn and to achieve things for ourselves. It really is born into us at such a young age. As early as preschool, which Jackson is in, we are tested. We are evaluated, graded, and even rewarded for good behavior. As adults, our efforts are are admired or they're dismantled, depending on what we do or what we fail to do at school, at work, or even at home. Everything from job performance to even decorating for the holidays. Have you heard that quote? My, this year you have really outdone yourself. We take pride in what we accomplish. And so much so, much so that we sometimes have difficulty appreciating what comes to us regardless of the efforts that we make. We do take so much pride in our in our achievement, but we see this is not a new phenomenon, as King David was doing that in our Old Testament lesson today. In 2 Samuel, from the reading, you can almost see, almost see David sitting back in his royal recliner, surrounded by luxurious body pillows. They probably had those in some form or fashion back then, looking out at the large window 
in his palace, overlooking the kingdom that he rules as far as the eye can see. David is feeling good, and he is well on his way. Just listen to his accolades up until this point. David has put the Philistines in their place. He has united the country from north to south. He has established the new capital city of Jerusalem and brought forth the Ark of the Covenant in a glorious parade. He vanquished Goliath the giant. Saul is now dead and David is very much alive. He is riding high, enjoying life at this point. Now it tells us, now when he is settling King David in his house, not God's house, when he is settling in his house and the Lord has given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now I'm living in a house made of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Do you hear the haughtiness in that line as he's speaking to Nathan? He says, I live in a house of cedar. But the Ark of the Covenant and God live in a tent. His success had begun to get the best of him and take over his mind. David seems to believe now he is going to do a big favor for God with this success that he has come into. His fancy cedar house is better than the house of God. And he has achieved a standard of living better than that of God. And now believes from his position of success and strength that he can do something great for God. He is crossing the line from being full of God into being full of himself. Enter the prophet Nathan as a messenger who has a message for David that pulls him back from that line. Nathan reminds David that God Almighty, the creator of all, won't be bought or held in a place God is free and will continue to be free. Nathan reviews the long list of gracious acts that got David where he was today. We hear, I took you from the past to be prince over my people Israel. I was there with you wherever you went. I cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make your name famous. I will pick the place and the people and give you rest and peace. The mighty King David would not build a house for God. It is God that would build the house for David, a key component to our Old Testament lesson this morning. God's promises come to fruition in a new pledge. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you know what this means? Not only can David not earn the prosperity for his kingdom, he can't mess it up either because God has it. This promise of God is unconditional forever and ever. It's a turning point in the relationship between God and Israel. Before now... It has all been commandments. All of God's commitments have been governed by an if statement. As if, if you will obey, you will receive these things. But now the if has been replaced 
with what Walter Brueggemann calls a nevertheless. If has become nevertheless. David may sin. Actually, we know the Bathsheba story, just one in many stories, that David would sin terribly. But nevertheless, God's commitment to David would persist. This is a clear presentation of justification by grace in which the works of David and Israel are not decisive. What is decisive is God's love is unconditional and has promised to make things right. So the redemption of God's people will always be in thanks to God and not to David or to any other man. Remember that light in the dark story, Abby crumpling like she did? Well, that life lesson begins seeing in the dark as our eyes adjust to the dark begins to happen here. That begins to happen in the messianic revelation, overturning the, the expectations, illuminating their hopes, blessing and strengthening, strengthening generations yet to be born. As we turn to the gospel of Luke, we meet the heirs of this great promise of God and the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, who comes to fulfill these promises. In Luke, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, announcing God's favor. And we are reminded yet again about the things that people earn and the things that we do not earn or cannot earn. Mary is addressed as the favored one or the blessed one. Is this a title that Mary has won somehow? Is it the fruit of her faithfulness? And what does Gabriel, Gabriel's greeting mean to Mary? Our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church take the greeting to mean Mary's extraordinary nature is revered because she is one of a kind, without sin, and also the Virgin Mother. A more Protestant view would portray the extraordinary nature of Mary would be that she is ordinary. Her extraordinary nature would be that she is ordinary. The theologian Cynthia Rigby says it this way. We believe that Mary is part of the priesthood of all believers. She exhibits for us as sinful embodied saints the mysterious reality that we are included in the love of God and in the work of God. The reformer John Calvin rejected the idea that when Gabriel identified Mary as favored, he meant that she was worthy of praise. Rather, Calvin said, Gabriel recognized Mary as the joyful one who had received the undeserved love of God, and she recognized it. She had received the undeserved love of God and recognized it. As we hear Mary's response, let it be with me according to your word. Mary told the angel, let it happen to me as you predict. The undeserved love of God, a.k.a. blessing we or she did not earn. Light coming freely to us, also known as God's grace. As I've had a little time since I've returned from Maryland, where uh, Ashley's family is for a little Christmas before we came back home, 
or I'm here and they will return Friday as they stayed with her family. I had a little time to get into some of the old books that I love and that mean a lot to me. And I know you've heard Joe speak about an author and speaker named Donald Miller. He wrote a memoir called Blue Like Jazz, which I absolutely love and recalled a story that he tells, a modern day in his own life example of just what we are talking about in the scripture this morning. Donald tackles the subject of how hard it is for people sometimes to receive the grace of God. He, he used to be one of those people, and he had one of these teaching life moments which would show him just how much he was in need of the Savior. He would sing about grace, he would read about it, but he couldn't actually accept it. He said, it seemed wrong to me not to have to pay for my sin, not to feel guilty about it or to beat myself up about it. He also talked about grace not being what he was looking for, as it seemed sometimes too easy. I wanted to feel as if I had earned, Donald Miller says, God's love as though God and I were buds, doing favors for each other. Miller had one of those teaching life moments in the grocery store line of all places. He was behind a woman standing in line that as it came time to pay for the few groceries that he had, she would pay with, for those with food stamps. It was the first time that Miller had ever seen food stamps. He had heard of them, but never seen them or someone that needed them. And he was intrigued and at the same time uncomfortable by the experience. He had the internal wrestle, do I pay for those or should I stand here and just do nothing and look on? Then he knew that the woman as she walked away was feeling judged by him just standing there and watching the whole thing go on. It was later he realized it wasn't the woman that needed pity at all but it was actually him as that experience revealed to him. He had come to believe that just because a person might be in need, they, that doesn't make them candidates for sympathy or just charity. It wasn't as if he wanted to buy her groceries. The government had actually done that for her. He wanted to buy her dignity. Yet by judging her, he was actually doing the opposite in denying her her dignity. Miller began to put himself in her shoes, and he came to the realization, I love to give charity, but I don't like to be the charity. This is why he had so much trouble with grace. And like King David and many of us, Donald had wanted to believe that he was above the grace of God and equal of God. None of us or above the grace of God. All of us from the rich, powerful ruler to the poor, lowly, virgin mother are all recipients of God's charity, every single one of us. And why we at, at times may wish that we could earn God's favor, it is better to accept that God's blessing is a gift. It is something giving, not something won. God's blessing and grace for us is something giving, not something given, not something we have to go out and win. You really can't work any harder to get it, nor can you mess it up. 
God's love and favor simply come. Like light, once your eyes have adjusted to the darkness of the night, or like a baby, when the time for his birth has finally come. Now I can properly say, Merry Christmas. Amen.